0: You're listening to the Heal Better Fast podcast, dedicated to bridging the gap between alternative healthcare and mainstream medicine in utilizing everything good to help you feel great. We're glad you tuned in. Now here's your host, Dr. Michael Pound. Today I interview a pioneering physician and scientist who empowers readers by showing them the research for preventing, treating, and even reversing disease using surprising foods. Now, Dr. William Lee is an internationally renowned Harvard-trained medical doctor, researcher, and president and a founder of the Angiogenesis Foundation. His groundbreaking work has led to the development of more than 30 new medical treatments. It's impacted more than 50 million people worldwide and covers more than 70 diseases, including cancer, diabetes, blindness, heart disease, and obesity. His TED Talk, Can We Eat to Starve Cancer?, has garnered more than 11 million views. Now, Dr. Lee has appeared on The Dr. Oz Show, CNN, MSNBC, Voice of America, and has been featured in USA Today, Time, The Atlantic, and The O Magazine. Dr. Lee has served on the faculty of Harvard Medical School and presented at the Vatican's Unite to Cure Conference. Today, we are going to dive into his book, Eat to Beat Disease, which I had the pleasure of reading. Now, this book isn't about what foods to avoid, but rather is a life-changing guide to the hundreds of healing foods to add that support the body's defense systems, including San Marzano tomatoes, olive oil, Pacific oysters, and even squid ink. I hope you'll be as inspired by these physicians' recommendations as I was. Here's Dr. Lee. All right. Welcome to the show today, Dr. Lee. I'm happy to have you on.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: So I just have to say, the first time I met you and uh, you showed me your book, I wanted a copy of it, but at the time it hadn't been printed yet. And now that I've actually had the chance to look through it and read it, I'll just have to say I was really impressed and I'm excited for your launch coming up.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's an important uh, mission for me to really be able to take the latest information about uh, food and our health and uh, put it translate in a way that everybody can understand. And I think that's the biggest uh, challenge out there is there's so much com- uh, information and some confusion about what's good for us and why I thought, you know, putting everything into a book uh, that uh, would be uh, easy to read but actually have new information would be helpful.
0: Yeah, speaking of easy to understand, one of the concepts you talk about right in the beginning and, and essentially I believe it's what you've formulated a lot of your work around, which is angiogenesis. So what led to your interest in that and explain a little bit of what it is for people who don't know.
1: Yeah, so the word angiogenesis is a Greek word and actually uh, angio is blood, like blood vessels and genesis is, the, is growing and androgenesis is how our body grows blood vessels. Uh, I started research in this area uh, about 30 years ago uh, at a laboratory at Harvard Medical School uh, that uh, was just trying to figure out how do blood vessels grow to heal wounds and how sometimes do diseases like cancer hijack that natural process um, that helps us heal in order to be able to uh, feed itself and then become sort of this runaway train that we have so much trouble stopping. And so I started in 1994 an organization, a nonprofit called the Androgenesis Foundation that would be committed to looking at this process of blood vessel growth and is, is and finding out a way of actually bringing the science forward to change people's lives. And we uh, found some amazing things out about androgenesis, first of all, Blood vessels are one of the biggest organs in our body. About 60,000 miles of blood vessels are packed under the skin. That means that if you were to pull all of the blood vessels out end to end, they would form a line that would go around the earth twice. These blood vessels bring oxygen and nutrients to every single cell in our body. And therefore they're incredibly important. So we began taking a look at how do blood vessels stay healthy? And what happens in disease when you don't have enough blood vessels and you need more or you have too many blood vessels and you need to kind of prune them back? And that's what the Androgenesis Foundation does. And and it's from that uh, platform that uh, we helped to develop 32 FDA-approved medicines for cancer and vision loss from aging and diabetes and also wound healing. And then actually we turned the entire thing upside down to say, In addition to treating disease, can we prevent disease? And instead of medicines, can we use food? And that led to the journey that uh, I was on to write my book, Eat to Beat Disease.
0: Is the process that you're explaining essentially trying to increase blood flow to certain areas?
1: It's actually both. So um, our body uh, is filled with health defense systems. And this is really where the science uh, has advanced. So I'm a medical doctor, internal medicine doctor, and I'm a research scientist. And, you know, can you combine what I see with patients with what the science uh, is bringing to uh, into focus? What we now know is that when it comes to understanding food and health, it's not just about our food, uh, what the food we eat, it's actually about how our body responds to the food and geo and- or our blood vessels is uh, one way that foods can impact our body, but there are other ways as well. Um, We want in our health defense systems the perfect balance of defense. So when you talk about blood vessels, you don't want too many, you don't want too few. You want just the right amount. When it comes to another defense system, which is our um, stem cells or our regenerative system, so we can repair and replace our organs as we age, we don't want too many stem cells, nor do we want to have too few. Our microbiome, uh, the healthy gut bacteria, is another perfectly balanced defense system where when we have just the right amount, it fuels our body's ability to function in a healthy way from our brain to our fingertips, frankly. Uh, Our DNA also um, perfectly balanced in its function. And of course, our immune system is the final defense system that is actually that's being perfect balance. Too much immunity and you have autoimmune disease too little and you have immunodeficiency. And so what what when it comes whether it's angiogenesis or any of these other body defenses it's actually the most common sense thing are to function properly to give us our health our health defense systems have to be in a perfect state of balance.
0: Yeah, it was as I was reading through your book, that's kind of a common thread that goes you know, through everything that you explain. Essentially, you talk about things that are good for you, and the common misconception is, well, if it's good for me, then I should just load up on it. And with something as important as immunity, it seems to be a concept that we all understand, but it's really hard to quantify or measure. Or even grade, and so with this gap in understanding, how does one gauge one's own immunity and what the impact is?
1: Right. Well, so you know, I come at this really by thinking about immune our immune our immunity in a couple of different ways. First of all, the the way that everyone's going to know is whether or not you're feeling healthy or and resistant to sickness. So when we're uh, have a runny nose, we know our immunity is down. We're uh, when we have the flu, we know that you know um, we're we've been infected, and we need to kind of fight our way back to health um, and so uh, one way of knowing whether or not we um and, and if we are if our immune system is overactive, as can happen in autoimmune diseases, we can have bad joint pains and we can have bad skin rashes and many other symptoms like that. So the first way of kind of gauging our own immunity and how well our defenses are. At work, And whether it's balanced is how we're actually feeling in general. Um, but at a deeper level, what science is bringing to the table is, you know, the immune system is as um, a marvelous defense system where there's two main parts of it. You've got the part that's responsible for inflammation, and then you've got the part that's responsible for immune cell killing. Uh, inflammation, oftentimes people view that as a really bad thing we want to get rid of. So how many times have we heard about an anti-inflammatory diet or you know an anti-inflammatory lifestyle? But in reality, a little inflammation is really good. When we cut ourselves, um, you notice right away the area around the, the cut actually swells up a little bit. That's inflammation. That helps our, to jumpstart our healing. But after things have been taken care of in terms of the injury the inflammation calms down. And that's a theme of our immune system for balance is getting back into balance. We turn it up and then we turn it down. And so the other part of our immune system is where our immune cells, and they come with a bunch of names like T cells and natural killer cells and dendritic cells. It's a whole ecosystem of immune cells. They go to work to find invaders in our body, whether it's a bacteria, a virus, or a cancer. And again, when we actually, you know, are invaded by these uh, systems, a doctor can go draw some blood and measure how many white blood cells or or immune cells are actually elevated in the blood. And even we can send further, send them to a special lab to find out the types of immune cells. And this is what happens with, you know, when a patient with HIV is tested, we can get really granular and to find out exactly how their immune system works. But for most people, after an infection in our immune system actually uh, is done with its job, uh, what's really important is that our, our, our body, as part of this defense, um, ratchets it all the way back down. So the immune system is kind of like, it's not an on and off switch. It's more like a volume switch. Um, you have the regular volume where it needs to be at, and then you kind of turn it up when you need to and turn it back down. Uh, how do you measure it? You measure by how you feel. You measure by um, how well the immune system is functioning when you need it, and then how well it actually uh, comes back down to a comfortable level uh, for defense.
0: That hit home for me because I have a little one who has rheumatoid arthritis, and so you know mm-hmm. we talk back and forth about you know the different dietary aspects of my family, and even how the kids eat all eat differently. And in fact, when I got to the part of rethinking the kitchen, I really took took it to heart your your chapter in the book and. And you have a a few great tips for essentially rethinking the kitchen. Can you share a couple of those that you see are most common needle movers in the American kitchen?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, look, I mean, all of us have a kitchen or access to a kitchen. Uh, You know, it's where we spend actually a fair amount of our lives, uh, you know, uh, uh, preparing our meals and and having snacks uh and for most of us the kitchen is sort of a storehouse whether it's a pantry or a refrigerator or a freezer and we just go there to grab the things out of it and as you know um most people wind up accumulating a whole bunch of things um i encourage in my book eat to be disease that people rethink their kitchen as a healing center So if you look at the kitchen as sort of a center of your life at home, think about it a place that you can go to rejuvenate, refresh, and actually, you know, get your body into good shape. It's almost as important as, you know, the gym or the workout center is like your kitchen. So the first thing I always talk about is, you know, cleaning out the cupboard and cleaning out the fridge. All those things that have accumulated, if they're highly processed, if they're artificial, um, you know, if they are, are frankly, if they're old and outdated, those things need to go. And moving, taking out um, the old stuff and the things that aren't good for you leaves more room for the good things. So what are some of the good things that every pantry, for example, uh, should have in it? Well, one thing, if you, if anybody who cooks in the kitchen, which is most of us, you should have a healthy cooking oil like olive oil. And in my book, what I talk about is not all of, all olive oil is made the same way. It's created the same way. Some olives are much higher in the healthy polyphenols that fight diseases than others. And so most of us who go to the store pick up a, just our favorite bottle of olive oil, maybe the one that we're most familiar with but I encourage you to look, pick up the bottle and look at the back and find out what type of olive was used to make that olive oil. So for example, there is a Greek olive oil made with a Greek olive called a Koroneki olive. Um, that one is really high in polyphenols. There's an Italian olive oil made with Moriolo olives, and that's from Umbria. That's really high in polyphenols. And then the third Really um, powerful olive is called uh, is from Spain called the Picual olive and that's really high in olive. So Greek, Italian, Spanish olive oils. If you ch- if you go back and pick up the bottle and look for the specific um, type of olive, that can actually be really helpful because wouldn't we all like to have the best, the most powerful, the most healthy version of any food? So you know, that, so that's one example of something to keep in your pantry. Dried beans, another great. Um, ingredient to keep in the pantry, uh, full of fiber, it feeds your good bacteria. Um, a can of tomatoes, like especially San Marzano tomatoes, which have are packed rich with lycopene. Great to have, easy to use, convenient. Um, uh, you know, another thing to actually have in your pantry: capers. Uh, another great um, little kind of tasty uh, explosion of flavor um, that can be put in jars in your pantry. And then, co- of course, coffee and teas are packed with. Natural bioactives, these are natural chemicals um, that you can keep in a cool, dark place, make a drink. I mean, um, all the research shows that drinking one to three cups of coffee a day or tea, you know, three or three cups of tea or so a day actually can reduce your risk of a number of diseases. When it comes to the refrigerator, I actually tell people the fridge should not be a storage unit. Um, It should be used to keep fresh fruits and vegetables. Most don't last more than a week or two and don't buy more than you can actually eat. And so the refrigerator should look more empty than full. And there's a chart in my book, um, Eat to Beat to Z, that shows you about how long each fruit and vegetable keeps um, in in terms of having the freshest kind of fruit. Last tip I'll give you about rethinking the kitchen is actually you can do yourself a huge health favor by removing plastic from the kitchen and that's what i've done in my kitchen you know take away the plastic spoons the plastic um uh, uh utensils uh, uh the cookware uh remove the plastic storage containers um one study actually found that in just 8 fluid ounces of bottled water you know everybody's got bottled water somewhere um that there's 22400 pieces of microscopic plastic um in bottled water and it's just tiny pieces that come off into the water and we're drinking that stuff. Um, uh, And in fact, a recent report, research report showed that even the deepest part of the ocean, the Mariana Trench, that the fish down there are actually filled with microplastic particles from the surface. So keep the plastic out of your, out of your kitchen as an alternative, you know, use glass, a pitcher filled with chilled water. Um, You can put all kinds of bioactives in it. If you put fruit and, celery and cucumbers and things like that to make your water taste really great. But those are just a few tips um, uh, out of many that I offer in the book.
0: Glad you brought that last one up because you don't know this. We didn't talk about this ahead of time, but this was one of my wife's favorite things to hear because obviously what she wanted to do is go replace all of her kitchenware, which is exactly what we did. So we took a trip mm. and we got rid of all of our cookware. We had a few things with the like Teflon in it. And, um, yep. and so we got rid of all of it. We went to stainless steel and ceramic. Uh, as you talked about, we got rid of all of our plastic cups. We got new, essentially stainless steel tumblers. And mm-hmm. the dreaded Tupperware, like you said, that's so convenient for warming up meals and keeping things in. But like you said, I I mean, I know it as I look at it, you could just see the plastic breaking away. We went to Mm -hmm. Costco and got some of those glass containers with the covers, and my wife absolutely loves them. So I appreciate those tips, and my wife thanks you as well (laughs) because she got all (laughs) new kitchenware.
1: Well, it's it's a great op- it's a great excuse to refresh your kitchen, and it just makes it a healing center, which is how I want people to think about their kitchens.
0: Now, you state the most powerful way to beat disease is to prevent it in the first place, and although I agree, you know, 100% in theory, in practical terms, this can sometimes seem implausible. So, prevention in in my practice seems like one of the hardest things to sell. How do you suggest we overcome this hurdle?
1: Well. I guess here's how I think about it. No one is untouched, goes untouched by disease. And, you know, we're all very sensitive to the fact that that there are people around us that are sick, that we may ourselves have a challenge, a health challenge, challenge we're dealing with. But the But the best way to think about the good news is that there's an opportunity to be able to restore and protect our health. So whether you're healthy or whether you're struggling with an illness, the goal is to really keep your health or return to your health. And so, you know, prevention is sort of a polarizing word. You know, it kind of um, seems like extra work, but really what we want to do is to keep our body just firing on all cylinders the way that we want it to be in the same way that people exercise regularly or take care of their car, maintain their car and change their oil every day or wash their clothes. I mean, I think that this really, if we think about eating to beat disease, as eating mindfully by knowing how our body naturally protects um, itself and how we normally resist disease, choosing the foods every day uh, at at every meal. So we've got three meals a day on average and actually usually a couple of other times, about uh, five times in total where we're choosing the foods that we eat. Every single moment that we choose and make a food decision is an opportunity to actually do something for ourselves. Paying ourselves forward. And I think that's a healthier way to think about um, prevention. The other thing really is that whatever we do when it comes to food, um, it has to be sustainable. Oftentimes, you know, the uh, quote healthy diets involve elimination. And elimination is just a difficult thing to keep up over time. We might be able to do it for a couple of weeks, maybe even a couple of months, but. Human nature abhors deprivation. So when there's a special diet that says we can't do this or we can't eat that, uh, you know, naturally we um, actually want to try it or put it back in our lives or eat it. But also, if it's something that we actually genuinely like, it becomes really difficult. So in my book, Eat to Beat Disease, what I do is I have a completely different approach. I say there is evidence that the foods that we enjoy are actually healthy for us. So I've created a list of more than 200 different kinds of foods that are the kinds of things that we all like. You know, if you can't find something uh, in that list that you you don't like, you probably haven't really lived. And so um, everything from fruits and vegetables, but chocolates, even cheeses, there's even beer on the list. Um, And it's all supported by scientific evidence. And so by leaning forward and choosing the foods that you know you like, the first step you've taken is already something that you are you can already stand up for. You can get behind your own choices. I think all of these types of approaches, which is what to add to your life, what you actually prefer, is a great step forward in putting prevention into your life. Yeah,
0: and, and I love how you kind of break it down and make it simple, as you said, just making these choices to add. In fact, you list some sample, what you call five-by-five-by-five by five by five plans in your book. And included are a couple things I have I admit I've never heard, even tried uh, where did you f- find the inspiration to add squid ink or purple potatoes? Where did that come from? And how is it? Yeah. <laughs> how easy is it to add these things to a diet?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, so listen, I'm aii I'm a I'm a scientist, so I spend a lot of time uh, involved with research and keeping up with the research that's going on around the world. Um, what's amazing is a lot of research on food is being done um, not only in the United States but also in Europe and Asia and uh, and even South America. And, and, and no matter where you go, food researchers, uh, tend to work on foods that are important in their cultures. So for something like squid ink, um, squid ink is not so common in America, although you can go to a restaurant today and even a grocery store easily and find black pasta, right? He starts, we're starting to see that on the menu, but if you go to the Mediterranean and you know, the Mediterranean diet is healthy, if you go to, um, Spain or Italy, um, uh, eating squid ink is really or having food with squid ink in it is actually very common and there's many uh, important cultural regional dishes that can contain squid ink it's kind of briny It um, uh, tastes delicious I, I love it myself and the researchers there have actually um, found that um, squid ink can actually protect your stem cells uh, it can boost your immune system it can uh, stop uh, cancers from getting a blood supply. So really quite remarkable what it can do. So how do you actually um, add it to your diet? Well, it's not that common an ingredient uh, in um, in North America, but what I would say is that if you go to a grocery store and you look in the pasta section and you see black pasta, look carefully, you'll see it's squidding pasta, buy it and try it. You cook it just like regular pasta, but you know, it's got a little bit of a seafoody flavor and, and uh Great to just have plain with a little bit of tomato sauce, um, San Marzano tomatoes have the highest amount of lycopene, so I would recommend that with a little bit of olive oil made from those three olives I talked about um, and it's really simple on the other hand, if you um, aren't seeing it in your grocery store, just pay attention to the menu when you go to an Italian restaurant next time, and I think you'll sooner or later you'll come across it because it's increasingly popular. Purple potatoes. Um, uh, I have a colleague uh, at the at Penn State University uh, who's a researcher who um, brought to me a research discovery he made, which I found to be stunning. Purple potatoes, which used to be the prized potato, like a treasure of the Incan uh, kings, uh, uh, actually contain a natural chemical, an anthocyanin, that kills cancer by knocking out their stem cells so let me just explain a little bit cancers are abnormal cells that are growing into a ball and they can get bigger and bigger and bigger uh and uh and sometimes and usually we can treat cancer and or take it remove them by surgery but but too often the cancers will come back and when cancers come back after they've been treated or removed it 's because there are these cancer stem cells baby cancer cells that are giving birth to new babies it 's kind of like the termites in your you know in, in the wall that actually keep giving birth to new uh, new termites hard to get rid of it in fact cancer stem cells are the holy grail for cancer researchers to find a way to get rid of them so um, uh, Professor Jaron Vanamala at Penn State showed me this stunning research that Purple potatoes, when fed to mice with colon cancer, would cut the growth of the colon cancer by about 50%. But the way they did this is by killing the stem cells in that cancer. So, purple potato, remarkably, maybe the Incans were right, actually had this, you know, secret um, activity of being able to knock out cancer stem cells. It's, you know, this is really new discoveries that are going to change the way we think about our food. Where do you get them? Well, I mean, just go to um, uh, uh, restaurants these days and you'll and even the potato section of the grocery store, don't look for, you know, obviously the regular russet potatoes and the white potatoes and even the red potatoes are there. But I think it's not too difficult to go and, and look around to some stores and find uh, purple potatoes. They're, they're kind of um, dark blue uh, and purplish potatoes that are um, found in the potato section. Uh, what's interesting is that the researchers actually looked at a variety of way of looking at the looking at the potatoes raw, cooked, fried, made into chips, and they all had the same activity of being able to fight these colon
0: cancer stem cells. Wow, that's really cool. There's going to be a rush on purple potatoes now. Maybe not the squid ink, but that that may take longer to catch (laughs) on, but the purple potatoes for sure. (laughs) Now, you state that no whole food is universally good or bad. The impact of food on each person is unique, depending on a number of factors, including genetic makeup. So this is an important point that I'd like you to expand on, especially how do we as individuals know which foods are good or bad for us? Do we go again by feeling, or is there hope for households made up of people? with different needs
1: right so you know I write about my book eat to beat disease that the individual is has their own makeup uh, and and genes our DNA is really incredibly important it's really the the blueprint for who we are however um, and, and by the way that's actually the way that medicine is starting to evolve we're beginning to realize that there's no um, blanket way that we can treat uh, a patient just because it's, there's a particular disease, we throw the same r- formula um, at the disease. I mean, actually, that's how medicine used to be practiced. We're beginning to realize we need to individualize our approach to every single patient, whether they've got a pneumonia, whether they've got a cancer, whether they've got an autoimmune disease. And looking at the genetic makeup it actually gives us really important clues. So this is something in medicine that's called personalized medicine. It's individualized for the person based on what their makeup is. So we know, for example, that there are certain genes that are cancer increase your risk of cancer, like BRCA. So it puts a woman at higher risk for ovarian cancer or breast cancer. We also know that there are genes that are actually associated with um, dementia, like Alzheimer's disease. Um, And there are certain genes that are associated with uh, heart disease as well. Uh, We know that when you find individuals with these higher risks... Those are the types of diseases that we can take some steps to try to um, avoid or dodge or minimize the chances that we're going to get that. If you knew that you were uh, at high risk to develop, for example, one of your listeners, breast cancer, we know that there are specific steps you can take um, to actually lower the chances that that could happen. And, you know, food and diet is w- one of those uh, things. Um, in medicine, we are you know, taking samples of tumors and we're taking blood samples and liquid biopsies and cheek swabs. You know, this is sort of what we hear about commonly ancestry.com. If you take it to the hospital, that level, we can really begin diving deep into um, the individual. Uh, We're not there with nutrition yet, but we are moving in that direction. So one day, probably sooner than we think in the future, there's going to be the concept of personalized Precision nutrition that's going to match our own individual makeup with what it is that we actually need. It's still a few years away, but it's super exciting. In the meantime, we know what our risks might be. We know uh, uh, that there are things that we also crave that might not be so good for us. And it's a matter of kind of putting the whole equation together. Not everyone is the same. And that's really why. Having a preference based approach to healthy eating is so good I mean you know something that you, you if you and I uh, went out to uh, have lunch together, what you prefer would, uh, on the menu is likely to be what is different than what I prefer and but that's okay we can both make healthy choices and I think that's why um, the the reality is is that we will all be we will all continue to make you um, uh, Uh, individualized choices. And we'll we'll probably never get to a point where there's one prescription food that's good for everybody. So there's no magic, when it comes to food and health, there's no magic food, no superfoods and no super diets. It's all about how our individual bodies respond to the food.
0: So as I was reading through your book, I had to learn more about you, and I just kind of dug through what I could find online, and it it just I was just really impressed, and I could tell, as as you're just talking about the future of this individualized nutrition, I can I could tell you're going to be on the cutting edge of it, uh, but with this book, Eat to Beat Disease, and all of the things that you've accomplished up to this point, what what drives you to be so successful?
1: Well, I went into medicine to help people. That's something that I just am naturally drawn to. I Um, I grew up with uh, uh, members, uh, neighbors uh, surrounding my family that would always be ready to help whenever somebody was sick, and I was really inspired by that. And I also am a researcher because um, I believe in the power of science, and I think with really good science, we can start to address the problems that um, uh, really are vexing today. We can't solve these terrible diseases, and so science can give us the clues. So when you combine sort of science with medicine, uh, what I see is that there's an opportunity uh, to change people's lives um, in a big way. Uh, And so that's really what I wake up uh, excited to do every day is to um, bring the latest cutting edge and in fact, really push the edge uh, as forward uh, as, as fast as I can uh, in order to be able to come up with new breakthroughs that can that that uh, is available to anyone, uh, and that's very important to me. And why I wrote Eat to Beat Disease. Um, there, you know, with this new science that teaches us how our body heals itself and the impact of food, there is an immediacy that you can actually translate into an action that can help yourself right away.
0: And what's the, what would you say is the biggest health hurdle you deal with personally or the thing that you find is the hardest to keep up with?
1: Well, I'm fortunate to be um, quite healthy. I've always been fit and and, and uh, quite active. Uh, in my work, I actually travel a lot. And so I know that uh, anybody can relate to this. If you're traveling a lot, whether it's on a, uh, in a car, on a train, or in an airplane, uh, you're on the road and it's really hard to actually find Uh, healthy food, the the conveniences that are offered to us when we're traveling when it comes to food tend to be less than healthy choices. So I think I've I've found that I've had to develop the mindset to first of all, recognize things that are healthy, uh, think a little bit ahead about where I'm headed and what I'm likely to find there. And, you know, if if I'm going to be kind of in a, well, we call them food deserts, right? So places that are not going to have a lot of um, choices, healthy choices, I'll bring snacks myself and uh, and really make, try to take care of myself that way. Uh, here's something that's important, I think, that I've learned. It's okay. Uh, you know, not every day is going to be the same. Uh, we're going to all encounter uh, points where it's uh, difficult to actually get some healthy food. It's all right to be off the uh, health wagon every now and then. What we have to do is sort of just be mindful so we can get back on it. And if we make more good choices every day, day, the benefits will overcome the bad choices that sometimes we have to make. And so um, I would say, you know, the biggest health hurdle is just sort of keeping up with things when I'm traveling.
0: Well, I really appreciate this book. Again, this book is called Eat to Beat Disease, The New Science of How the Body Can Heal Itself. It is uh, on sale as of March 19th, 2019. Go out and get this book. It's an excellent resource to have. Dr. Lee, I appreciate the time you spent with me here. And if people want to find out more about you, where should they go?
1: Well, they can go to my website, drwilliamlee.com. Uh, that's uh, Lee spelled L-I. And uh, you can find me at, on Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, uh, at Dr. William Lee. And uh, the book Eat to Beat Disease is available wherever books are sold.
0: All right. Again, thank you for all of your time and the hard work that you put in this book. I appreciate you having you on the show today.
1: Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to the Heal Better Fast podcast
1: at www.healbetterfast.com.